The year is 1920. A Berlin police sergeant patrols the bridge over the Lundervar Canal when he hears screaming. Pedestrians point to a woman standing on the rail, looking down. The sergeant shouts to her and breaks into a run. Before he can reach her, she dives into the water below. The onlookers scream in shock as the policeman mounts the rail and dives after her. Moments later, he pulls the woman ashore, his skin pink and taut from the frigid water. Kindly, he asks her for her name and papers. And almost catatonically, she smiles, saying she has neither. Examining her wounds, he escorts her to the hospital. No one knows her name, where she came from, or why she tried to kill herself. On her admittance sheet, in the place of a name, they simply wrote, Miss Unknown. I'm Zach Lovelace, and this is Circa. July 17, 1918, Yekaterinburg, Russia. The Russian emperor and his family were ushered into a tiny brick room in the middle of the night. They were captured by the revolting Bolsheviks not but six months before and held captive in their own palace. Led by the secret Bolshevik police, Tsar Nicholas II carried his 14-year-old hemophiliac son alongside his wife, Alexandra, and their four other daughters, including the youngest, Anastasia. Yakov Yurovsky, the man in charge of the police, instructed each of his 11 men, hardened by years of famine and death, to take out their pistols and enter the room. Yurovsky entered last and turned to the Tsar, who had his back turned, saying to him, Your royal and close relatives inside the country and abroad are trying to save you. But the Soviet workers' deputies have decided to shoot you all. What? asked Nicholas, half-turning, just as he caught a bullet to the head. Suddenly a swarm of bullets erupted from the policeman's guns, ricocheting off the brick wall. The emperor's young son died, frozen at the sight of his dead father, as his sister slumped to the ground, surviving the initial firing. The shots had belted off the girl's waists and chests, and a bayonet felt just the same. Yurovsky later found out that the royal girls had lined their dresses with bodices of the family diamonds. After the shots to the stomach and the knifings, a coup de grace came with a shot to the face. Yurovsky's account of this secret slaying has him saying of the princesses, only they had guilt in their dying agony. The bodies of the royal family were dumped in a mine, then retrieved for fear of discovery, then dumped in an isolated bog. Miss Unknown awoke in the German mental hospital she'd called home for the past two years. It was 1922. In her time there, she'd been noted as speaking German with a Russian accent. She had scars on her head and body, but the most notable moment came when a fellow patient recognized her as Grand Duchess Tatiana of the royal Russian family. Slowly, others began to see a resemblance, too. Members of the former imperial house came and inspected the young woman, hoping for any sign of survival from the Romanov line. Many shook their heads, saying that this could not be Tatiana. But that's when Miss Unknown spoke, for she often was silent, saying, I did not say I was Tatiana. Like a small flame, the rumor spread quickly. Could this be the daughter of Tsar Nicholas? Could this be the young Anastasia? Miss Unknown did not deny it. Soon she began introducing herself as Anna. 
For 70 years, Anna would be examined, questioned about the disappearance of her family. She would bounce from one aristocratic benefactor to another, relying on their belief in her identity for everything. In 1994, she died of pneumonia, the ward of a lawyer in Charlottesville, Virginia. In 2007, outside of Ekaterinburg, a mass grave was discovered. Amidst the tangle of bones, Tsar Nicholas and his family were identified. A few DNA tests later, and everyone of the Tsar's children were confirmed. Anna, it seemed, was back to being this unknown. And to this day, her true identity remains a mystery. Imposters, forgeries, frauds and fakes, truth and lies. For all of history, men and women have been obscuring the facts, from paintings to signatures. There's not a thing on this planet that cannot be faked in some way. In the 19th century, many paintings of Johann Vermeer's were copied by forgers, and then those were copied, and then those were copied. Only slight variations in the brushstroke would ever give away the fraudulent. The motivation is easy enough to find. There's an advantage in selling something as if it were the genuine article, the real McCoy. Even if what we're looking to gain isn't just money, but hope. Many claim to believe the moon landing was a hoax of the highest degree, funded to keep hopes high in the US during the Cold War. JFK himself set a deadline that before the 60s was done, we'd set a foot on that dusty white rock. Those are big words, made bigger in the face of the Soviet Union. But what is history but an agreed upon lie? If we all believe we made it to the moon, but we truly didn't, what's the difference? How can we truly prove any of it happened in the first place? No man is better known for his love of the hoax than Phineas Taylor Barnum, or P.T as the papers called him. Most will know him from the circus that still carries his name to this day. But Barnum got his start in the mid-1800s, collecting oddities like the Fiji mermaid, or Tom Thumb, exotic women, sword swallowers, jugglers, and giants. In 1845, Barnum toured Europe, collecting as he went, drinking and eating merrily. He claimed it was the best time of his life. He amused monarchs and laymen alike with his collection, even meeting the Tsar of Russia, the great-grandfather of Tsar Nicholas II, Nicholas I. P.T. returned to the U.S., hailed as the Prince of Humbug, a 19th century word for trickery or hype. He opened many museums and attracted hundreds of thousands with his newfound publicity. He stated that he didn't believe in duping the public, but simply drawing them in by the cords of their own curiosity to further please them. It was at this height that Barnum would try and buy up any oddity, often shoveling out tens of thousands of dollars. The famed ringleader knew something about human nature. He understood that humans love to see the impossible, even if they know it's not true. They want to believe that it might be, that somewhere something truly amazing could exist. One of the best examples of this was the Cardiff Giant. The giant was a 10-foot man, petrified in solid gypsum, discovered at a well site in Iowa. He is white, porous, with his ribs showing and a hand placed over his groin. 
Secretly, he was crafted by a tobacco salesman and several sculptors who he had sworn to silence. The creator's name was George Hull, and after a fight at a Methodist revival, he fashioned this monstrosity to combat biblical ideas that giants once roamed the earth. Hull hoped to play on the hopes of the religious, then reveal his creation as a fake. After discovering the giant, Hull set up a tent and let the crowds come. Soon, they attracted the attention of two different showmen, a man named David Hannum and, of course, P.T. Barnum. Hannum won the bid for the giant and exhibited the petrified man in New York City, where it drew even larger crowds. Burned but not discouraged, P.T. Barnum commissioned a man to secretly cover the George Hull's creation in wax, stealing its dimensions and likeness, and created his own. He publicly declared Hull's creation a hoax, stating that this was the real deal. There's a sucker born every minute, David Hunnam, the competing exhibitor, said, eyeing the crowds outside of Barnum's exhibit. That line would later go on to be wrongly attributed to Barnum, a fitting false catchphrase for a forger of the forgeries. Forgery plays on the notion that people want to believe the truth. The Russians who wished so badly that their monarchy survived in young Anastasia, hoping for old glory lost in a fury of gunfire, to return triumphantly, discovered the dangerous side of hope. With today's access to information and widespread skepticism, the real problem becomes whether or not to believe when someone cries hoax, much like P.T. Barnum did with his own giant. There's always an angle, always a buck to be made. History is wrought with stories of forgeries and frauds. We are pocked by moments of foolery, some funny, some sad, but this is because there is something in us that is unhappy with the truth. We hope for the miraculous, for the unbelievable to be true. It is telling the truth that does not come naturally to humankind. A lie is almost exclusively something human. Of course, some animals perform trickery, but that's nothing more than illusion. Men, they not only tell the lie, they want to believe the lie they tell. Sure, with today's technology, we can change our names, steal identities, become someone else entirely. But will that ever stop the fact that there are suckers born every minute and that we, undoubtedly, are one of them? Thank you for listening. Circa is written and recorded by me and produced by The Bento Block. And a special thanks on this episode to Grant Kirkhope for the Witchy World theme from Banjo-Kazooie. I've launched a Patreon alongside this project to start building support for the show. If you'd like to support the show, as well as enjoy perks like getting each episode a few days early, behind-the-scenes content, or upcoming merch, check out the link in the description. Stay tuned for next week's episode. And remember, you are history. <laughs>